Hey everyone, I'm Ben Norton and you are watching or listening to Multipolarista. Today we are talking about Nazism and fascism, all these topics that you can't really talk about anymore because if you do talk about them, you're accused of Russian disinformation and propaganda. Now, clearly, you know, on this show, I'm not a cheerleader for the Russian war in Ukraine. The war is extremely tragic. I have said many times that the best solution is a mediated settlement diplomacy. Unfortunately, the West, which helped to start this war, NATO has opposed diplomacy. And they've also said that if you talk about Nazis and fascists and ultranationalists in Ukraine, that you're engaged in spreading Russian disinformation. That is inconvenient for the actual facts, because the reality is that there are Nazis, there are ultranationalists and fascists in Ukraine. This is not just Russian propaganda. Clearly, it is in Russia's interest to exaggerate the influence of fascists in Ukraine, but that doesn't mean they don't exist. That doesn't mean they're not there. That doesn't mean they don't have a significant influence in the state security services. And today I'm joined by one of the leading researchers on fascists and ultranationalists in Ukraine, Mas Robeson. Uh, he has a series of amazing articles. He's done a lot of research on this. And I, I'm in the, the description below, I'll link to his substack, which is about the lobby of Stepan Bandera, the Ukrainian Nazi collaborator and ultranationalist leader. And he also has a separate blog that's called Ooks, Kooks and Spooks, talking about fascism and Ukraine and the far right. Um, Mas is an independent researcher, totally independent. He doesn't work for like Russian media or whatever. I mean, we're, we're immediately going to get attacked as like Russian propagandists or whatever. But no, I mean, we're both completely independent and we recognize that there is a very real problem here that needs to be acknowledged. Um, so Mas, let's start with the situation in Ukraine. Um, you know, of course, Russia invaded in February and Russia did say that one of the goals was denazification. Again, it's in Russia's interest to exaggerate that, but there has been a significant influence of uh, fascist groups that follow Nazi collaborator Stepan Bandera. Stepan Bandera has become honored by the Ukrainian state since the 2014 US-backed coup. And you have done a lot of research on this over years. So we are today going to talk about NAFO, which is this NATO propaganda operation that was founded by a literal Nazi, as you reported. But before we get to that, maybe you can just explain, you know, your research interests here into Stepan Bandera and the lobby. And what is this far-right, ultra-nationalist tendency we're talking about in Ukraine? Well, first of all, thanks for having me on. Um, I, um, the, ironically, for all the propaganda about Stepan Bandera and um, all the concern about uh, propaganda about Bandera and Nazis in Ukraine, there's really no, you know, Russian propaganda even doesn't uh, shed light on the fact that Bandera's organization uh, still exists and is quite powerful today. And, you know, I think people who I guess you could call my critics or haters or whatever, like to um, paint my research as trying to make a like a unifying theory of everything about the OUNB, the OUNB controls all the governments in the West and Ukraine and blah, 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 which is not what uh, my research is about. But it is, uh, I think, does shed light on the fact that this organization is quite influential. And really, there are no journalists who are willing to touch this uh, with a 10-foot pole, which if, you know, if there were, there are a lot of journalists and historians who would be a lot better at doing this research than me. 
Um, but because no one is, I can't really move on from this. Um, because if I do, then, you know, no one else will be uh, doing it. But for me, this kind of, I got interested in the history of the Bandera organization in the United States. And it's complicated because, you know, the CIA didn't really support Bandera, but like a breakaway group of which you might call the moderate rebels, the moderate Benderite rebels, <laughs> who, um, you know, after the war, they were part of Bandera's organization through the war. And then, you know, afterwards, um, you know, professed that they've now um, reformed and they're, they're now like, yeah, the moderate rebels. And to some extent, that is true that they did make like a pragmatic um, change in strategy. Um, they gave up. In the, like by the 1950s, realized that you know there the uh, the uh, Ukrainian resistance led by the OUNB and Soviet Ukraine is uh, was totally defeated and wasn't going anywhere, and so um, they also moved towards a more pluralistic um, uh, and like evolutionary strategy. And you know they you know on their uh, CIA uh, funded newspapers, you know might include like a token socialist or whatnot so for which the actual bandera hardliners accused them of being neo-communists and getting kind of lost in the weeds here but basically i got really interested in this history um and i you know because at a certain point 2014 2015 2016 i kind of gave up on trying to make sense of the truth of what was actually happening in the present day and i dug into this history that's super interesting and you know you could spend your whole life uh digging further into and you'll keep finding more and more interesting connections and, and stuff um but so i got so into this that i just kind of naively assumed that the OUNB ceased to exist OUNB being the bandera faction of the organization of ukrainian nationalists which did collaborate with the nazis i mean it was they had a rather complicated relationship um but in short they started world war ii and ended world war ii on good terms with uh, Nazi Germany. Um, there was a period basically 1943-44 where they were ostensibly anti-Nazi. But um, anyways, I assumed that this organization ceased to exist after Ukraine became independent because mission accomplished, right? Except no, they um, that was just kind of like phase one. And uh, and I, I, you know, I'm really grateful to you for helping to, uh, um, kind of bringing, helping me to realize that this organization still exists because I, in spring of 2019, went and visited the cemetery in uh, New Jersey, which I think is the largest Ukrainian-American cemetery in the country. And so, you know, a lot of just regular people are buried there, but they also have a lot of um, fascists and Nazi collaborators buried there, including a special section for veterans of the OUNB's Ukrainian insurgent army. But when I got there, I realized that the section was really, in particular, it was a lot of the, the, the ones who were working with the CIA, including Mikola Labed, um, who was Bandera's um, second deputy during the war, and at a point was uh, like running the OUNB, and arguably was a bigger war criminal than Bandera himself. But then he becomes the leader of the like democratic OUN faction supported by the CIA. And so I get there and I'm looking at these graves and I start to, um, well, I think I tweeted about it and you messaged me and encouraged me to write something about this. So I did. 
And in doing so and looking more into it, I realized that, so at that time I lived in New Paltz, New York, which is maybe an hour north of uh, New York City. And, you know, at that time it's very scenic. There's like mountains outside my window and, you know, I'd get overwhelmed by this historical research and I'd look out the mountains to, you know, calm myself down. And then I find out that on the other side of those mountains is the main OUNB affiliated summer camp, which is really a point of pilgrimage for the Bandera people worldwide, largely because as you can see there um, in that first picture, they have what they call the Heroes Monument. Um, that was a, built in 1962 um, in response to the assassination of Bandera in 1959. So they have these larger than life busts of um, OUN leaders uh, the main one being Bandera and also uh, Shukhevich, who was the leader of the Ukrainian insurgent army and another Nazi collaborator, war criminal. And um, so I went and visited this place and it was probably the most surreal moment of my life. And, um, you know, that was when I realized that these people never really went away. And then from there, I've just gone further and further down this rabbit hole. And... Um, so yeah, this is uh, in some ways this is all your fault for <laughs> for, making, for uh, you know setting me up to just be this maniacally uh, monomaniacally obsessed with OUNB, um, and so you know in some ways I'm kind of a one trick pony. Um, in, but this OUNB stuff really has uh, there's a lot of different directions to go with this. Like maybe we'll come back to this at the end. But like the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation was literally founded as a successor organization to something called the National Captive Nations Committee. And uh, the Bandera people were in the vanguard of that organization. And um, so there's, you know, and that's not to say that victims of communism is an OUNB front. They're, they don't think they really have anything to do with them these days. But the legacy of the OUNB and um, the history of their rather complicated relationship with the powers that be in Washington uh, is you know, extremely relevant to um, what we're seeing today, because really, I mean, you, this is an argument that could get into more, but like, you really wouldn't have this issue of neo-Nazis if you, if it wasn't um, for the incubation of these people in the United States and Canada. And then, you know, after Ukraine became independent, they basically um, re-exported or they re-imported uh, themselves back into Ukraine and blah, blah, blah. But um uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's all crazy. And for whatever reason, no one's really, no journalist is really willing to talk about this. Although historians who have done, um, groundbreaking scholarship about the history of the OUN and World War II, they can tell you the OUNB still exists because, you know, the OUNB has gone after them for, uh, doing this history. So it's, you know, it's really beyond dispute that this organization still exists. The question really is just how influential and important is it? And my argument is the answer is very much so. Yeah, and you mentioned there are some scholars, especially the website Defending History. I, I think you've collaborated with them. They're, you know, mainstream respected scholars who have done history on these attempts to rewrite the history of Nazi collaborators, of fascists, of the double genocide theory that is being promoted by a lot of these NATO and EU member states. Uh, David Katz has done a lot of research on that. And you've, I mean, you've, I think, been the leading researcher on detailing these fascist banderite networks in North America and the US and Canada as well. And we can talk about that later. I mean, 
in Canada, they go right up to the former foreign minister and current deputy prime minister, Christia Friedland. Her grandfather was himself a Ukrainian Nazi collaborator who edited a fascist propaganda newspaper that was printed using a printing press that was stolen from a Jewish publisher who was sent to a Nazi extermination camp. So, uh, you know, these Banderite networks, they go they go quite literally up to the deputy prime minister of Canada's government. Although one thing I will add about that is ironically, you know, for all the attention that Christian Freeland gets about the Banderites, they're really much more uh, influential in the conservative party. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of people make points about, oh, the Democrats and Ukrainian Nazis, but again, these people are right wingers. So they, they vote for Trump, they vote for the conservative party in Canada. And, you know, if it was an election between Christian Freeland and uh, Stephen Harper or some clone of his, um, I think they would vote for the conservatives, or at least they would be torn. Um, but also, you know, I think part of the reason why actual, you know, Russian propaganda isn't really shining a light on this is because, or, or rather one of the takeaways, more important takeaways, I think, of my research is that the real, when I talk about uh, Banderites, I don't mean just, you know, someone who's an apologist for Stepan Bandera. I mean, like actual cult followers, sworn members of Bandera's organization, or at least people who are members of front groups of the OUNB or organizations that were started by OUNB. So like Right Sector is not OUNB, but Right Sector was started by um, this organization called Stepan Bandera's Trident, which was formed in 1993 as paramilitary arm of an OUNB political party, which was co-founded um, by the leader of OUNB and also a uh, Ukrainian American who um, I'm not quite hit on him. I'm kind of fuzzy, but he played a role in helping to kickstart the, uh, or he played a role in helping the Azov movement build internationally. Um, and I don't think he's involved anymore, but uh, it's, yeah. So for me, the, the Banderites are not just the word Banderite is not just synonymous with Ukrainian Nazi or Ukrainian nationalist. I mean something much more specific than that, and um, which is why I think Russian propagandists don't like me very much, just like, you know, pro-Ukrainian or Western propagandists don't like me, because it's really inconvenient for all sides. And I think um, a lot of this research kind of cuts through the uh, propaganda on both sides. Yeah, and, and I should point out that you must, you've been doing this research for many years now. When most people who are now calling for sending billions of dollars more weapons to Ukraine couldn't point out Ukraine on a map, even if they can actually today point it out on a map, that, that's, that's debatable. But mm -hmm. you've, been, you've been doing research on this for years. And, you know, I, I'll say that, you know, I haven't done nearly as much research as you, but I've also been reporting on some of this. You know, uh, like when Andriy Parubi, who was himself a founder of two Ukrainian fascist organizations, including the Social National Party of Ukraine, which is a Nazi style party, he was invited by the U.S. Congress to speak in Washington. And Andriy Parubi at the time was the chair of the Rada, the Ukrainian parliament. So this is this is a real problem that has been going on for years. You know, the Atlantic Council, which is NATO's de facto think tank, published an article saying Yes, Ukraine has a Nazi problem, a fascist problem. It's not, this is not RT, it's real. So, uh, you know, this is something that you've been reporting on for years. And now, of course, that Russia invaded and escalated this war that's been going on since 2014, since the US backed coup in Ukraine, 
removed the elected government and installed this ultra-nationalist government that honored Bandera. This war that's been going on, that had been going on for eight years, it escalated into a new phase and all of that history was simply erased. And now we're told that this conflict began in February 24th of this year, erasing not just eight years of history, erasing decades and decades of history. Speaking of decades and decades, this guy, Emil Revyuk, um, this is a picture of, uh, he was the president of the Ukrainian, um, United Ukrainian Organizations of America, which was the forerunner to the Ukrainian Congress Committee of America. He was also the editor-in-chief. At this point, he was a deputy or associate editor of uh, Svoboda, not to be confused with the far-right political party in Ukraine, which Svoboda means uh, freedom or liberty. And so Svoboda is the name of the main, uh, I think the oldest continuously published Ukrainian newspaper in the world. Um, and originally started, had socialist origins and then turned nationalist by the 1930s. But so 1939, he testifies to the House and American Activities Committee. Um, and I'll just read from, there's a caption on the back, but um, it says, uh, Emil Revuk, associate editor of Svoboda, Ukrainian language daily newspaper in Jersey City, pictured as he testified before the Dyes Committee here, House and American Activities Committee, September 28th, 1939. Revuk told the committee that efforts have been made to organize 800,000 Ukrainians in the U.S. into an organization ruled by a fewer and sympathetic to Hitler. Um, there was This was a huge debate in the Ukrainian community in the 1930s. A lot of leaders of the Ukrainian community, many of them socialists, but even those were, you know, they were very anti-communist socialists. They weren't, uh, like, spreading Soviet propaganda. And um, the... Uh, you know, a lot of the, so this guy, among other things, he testifies about, um, there was a Ukrainian press service in Berlin that was also affiliated, that was run by the OUN, um, and this is before it split into OUNB and OUNM, the main two factions, and um, and they were, you know, sending, like, basically Nazi propaganda to the Ukrainian press in the United States and in Canada, and, uh, you know, the CIA, after the war, when it sets up its... Uh, newspapers run by the moderate rebels, moderate Banderite rebels, it, that includes people who were involved in the Ukrainian press service in uh, Berlin. And so, you know, there's all these examples of the, the people that the U.S. government was starting to investigate uh, 1941 or so. Five years later, the CIA is working with them. And, um, and it's like, even if it wasn't true that there was, let's just say for the sake of argument, there's absolutely no truth to the United States supporting neo-Nazis in Ukraine directly or intentionally, that regardless, you know, the CIA, in order to justify working with these people, had to whitewash them. And ironically, you know, the State Department and um, the White House, um, even Winston Churchill, when he makes his infamous or famous uh, Iron Curtain speech, and he's naming all the capitals, great capitals of Europe trapped behind the Iron Curtain. He doesn't mention Kiev. George Kennan, architect of the uh, U.S. Uh, strategy of Cold War strategy containing the Soviet Union, he said Ukraine is to Russia or the Soviet Union what Pennsylvania is to the United States. I mean, the United States government did not support what they saw as Ukrainian separatism um, during the Cold War. And so instead, the well, so, and so the CIA, in order to work with this faction, you know, told the State Department, no, these aren't nationalists. They're moderate uh, Democrats. And um, so they, they, they lied to themselves, they lied to uh, other parts of the government. And um, like, for example, that the founding uh, book on 
Ukrainian nationalism written by this guy, John Armstrong, 1959. In the, he, he, was, he considered himself an old friend of Yaroslav Stetsko, who was uh, the deputy to Bandera and then leads the OUNB in 1968. Also leads this thing we'll probably get into later, the anti-Bolshevik bloc of nations, which Scott and John Lee Anderson very accurately described as the, quote, largest and most important umbrella for former Nazi collaborators in the world. And um, and so and then this book ends up becoming the, you know, the thing that the CIA references to, you know, justify their whitewashing. And it's, you know, I can go on and on. And but it's it's um, the the whole whitewash narrative about OUN or the OUNUPA really the CIA has a lot of responsibility for that. Um, and so, you know, there's a great book um, somewhere here behind me called Blowback by Christopher Simpson. And really, you know, the whole issue of neo-Nazis in Ukraine is exactly that. It's blowback um, of uh, U.S. foreign policy, you know, supporting Nazi collaborators and stuff and, you know, deluding themselves about what they were getting involved with. Yeah, I mean, the, the history is pretty clear. Toward the end of World War II, the CIA, well, the OSS, which became the CIA, and British intelligence began recruiting a lot of these former Nazis, including former scientists and engineers in what became Operation Paperclip, and then later for a bunch of stay-behind networks that became Operation Gladio, the CIA, or OSS, then CIA, then NATO, supported a bunch of these former Nazi collaborators and fascists and ultranationalists in order to create these stay-behind networks, preparing for a potential war, a hot war with the Soviet Union. And these groups were linked to terror attacks and right-wing extremism across Europe, especially in Italy, which is why it's called Operation Gladio. That was the Italian branch, but there were stay-behind networks in a dozen European countries. In the Baltic states, the Nazi collaborators known as the Forest Brothers were supported by the CIA and NATO. In fact, a few years ago, NATO produced a slick not even a documentary, like a fiction movie based on, you know, like a fictionalized version of this history honoring right. the Nazi these Nazi collaborators in, in the, the Baltic states, the Forest Brothers, as anti-Russian heroes. So, I mean, it's clear why NATO, the U.S., these Western intelligence agencies supported these groups. They saw them as useful assets, just as we know that the CIA supported the Mujahideen in Afghanistan who later became Al-Qaeda and the Taliban. There's, there's a long history of this, and we could spend hours and hours talking about this. And I'm sure we Dave. will talk more about that history, Mas, but I want to talk a little bit now about NAFO specifically, mm -hmm. because we established this fact, again, it's not Russian propaganda, this historical fact that Ukraine has had a significant problem with fascists, Nazi collaborators, far-right extremists going back to World War II, and especially after the overthrow of the Soviet Union and the cultivation of these networks in exile during the first Cold War, you know, uh, you mentioned the anti-Bolshevik bloc of nations. There's also the World Anti-Communist League. John McCain was on the board and the World Anti-Communist League, which rebranded, but, you know, that's the original name. They, uh, they supported many of these Ukrainian fascists, along with the Contras in Nicaragua and all these other groups, Japanese ultranationalists. And... They have had, you know, for decades links to the U.S. government, the Canadian government, European governments. And in the 2014 coup in Ukraine, many of these far-right groups, not all Banderites, but far-right groups in Ukraine played a key role as the muscle behind the coup. And then, of course, this 
overthrew the elected government in Ukraine, and it set off this violent conflict. You have the rise of Azov, IDAR Battalion, Tornado Battalion, all of these fascistic ultranationalist groups. We can talk about them in a bit, but this is, of course, the very brief history in a nutshell. We fast forward. This you know war goes on for eight years right on Russia's border, and then Russia demands these security guarantees from the U.S. and NATO and the EU in December of last year, 2021. All those are rejected. The Minsk II agreements were not enforced. Germany and France were pressured by the U.S. not to enforce them. The Ukrainian government didn't enforce them. And then Russia invades in February, setting off another stage of this war. And this gives birth to a lot of information war. A huge part of this war is fought online. And one of these groups that emerged calls itself NAFO, the North America, uh, the North America, there's a Freudian slip. The, you know, NATO is the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. This is the North Atlantic uh, Fellows Organization. And they basically are an online propaganda campaign. They've been supported publicly by multiple U.S. military branches, Western governments, Ukrainian newspapers. But you did a really good and very important uh, article based on this research showing that NAFO was also founded by a literal Nazi and, and a Polish anti-Semite far-right extremist. Your article that you published in October, I linked to it in the description below. It's called Ooks, Kooks, and Spooks, NAFO. So that's the very brief overview. I just wanted to provide all that context because some people who, who listen to this might not know some of that history. So Mas, now that I've established that, let's talk about who the founder of NAFO is. His name is Kama Camilia. At least that, that's the name he uses on social media. He's tweeted a bunch of blatant fascist Nazi propaganda honoring Hitler, um, disputing that six million Jews were killed in the Holocaust. We're talking about a literal Nazi here. Talk about who this is and NAFO, what NAFO is and the research that you did. Well, um, he's, you know, he's just a video game gamer and, <laughs> you know, wrote, he, he describes himself, he used to describe himself as a freelance journalist. He wrote video game reviews. He also, on his uh, Twitter profile, used to say that his hot takes can be uh, paid, bought and paid for, which may have been a joke, but... Um, but you know, if I said that, it would I would it'd be held against me for the rest of my life as evidence that I'm a propagandist. But uh, he, you know, basically found meaning in his life by you know with this NAFO thing, and he is you know since this um, ironic or funny enough when I wrote this article, it wasn't until after I wrote it that I came across this stuff. Um, but uh, so the article actually isn't doesn't get into him very much. But um, since this thread went kind of viral, at least by my standards, um, uh, the NAFO people and others have tried to, you know, they've said, oh, he was just joking. And, oh, he's not really the founder, but he's undisputably the founder. I mean, they, they all, uh, it, it's, it's just ridiculous. And, um, and so... Yeah, I mean, it all started with he had this uh, Shiba Inu profile picture that, you know, like it's like a soldier or whatever. And then someone else wanted one and said, I'll send I'll make a donation to the charity of your choice if you make me one. And he said, send it to the Georgian Legion, which is not a charity, but a really brutal far right um, like battalion in Ukraine. 
and um, and then from there, the rest is history. That became the model that if you want to, if you want a fella, as they call it, you would make a donation to the Georgian Legion, and then eventually this kind of uh, this I guess brand called Saint Javelin um, got involved, and then you could make a donation to Saint Javelin or the Georgian Legion, and Saint Javelin sent their donations to the Georgian Legion too. But then they partnered with something called the Ukrainian World Congress, which again, not to I'm not trying to say this is oh everything's OUMB conspiracy, but the the Banderites really dominate the Ukraine World Congress. Um, every president of the Ukraine World Congress since 1998 has been um, a bona fide Banderite. Um, the currently the the first vice president of the um, Ukraine World Congress is the guy Stefan Romanov, who was literally the international leader of the OUNB since 2009, and so. They send the money to the Ukrainian World Congress, and the Ukrainian World Congress sends it to the Ukrainian government. And presumably, they're taking a cut. I mean, something um, relevant about this guy and his testimony is they've been doing. They've had the same. The Bandera people have had the same strategy for decades. They skim. They they live off of the Ukrainian community, skimming from other organizations, and you know it's basically a criminal organization. But so I'm getting off track. But um, NAFO is just they call it an internet army. It's, I'm kind of agnostic about how organic this thing is because it's so juvenile that it almost seems like beneath like the CIA to kickstart this. Also, the you know, there's a Not, nothing is beneath the CIA. I, well, okay, but but I mean, sexual at, blackmail supporting Nazi collaborators. Yeah, but I mean, also though, if you look at like the there's some official U.S. government cyber account and the memes that they put out are just so like elementary it's you know i don't i'm not convinced that they're necessarily the brainchild of this but as ivana uh stradner who's uh works at the kiev post and she's a fellow for the what is it, foundation for defensive democracy she's a she openly describes herself as a neocon and which previously said she's a civilian nafo propagandist um that was around the time that she joined the kiev post which is now just a complete, might as well be called the NAFO post at this point. Um, uh, and she joined them as their special correspondent for like information war. So she really joined them as her, their like NAFO special correspondent. And um, where was I going with that? Um, oh, uh, but, oh yeah. So she, you know, she's explicitly said, you know, the whole point is to, gaslight what they consider Russian propagandists. And of course, if you say anything that, if you don't toe the line 100%, you're a Russian propagandist. So, you know, according to some of the more extreme people in the NAFO community, you know, even the New York Times and Bellingcat and, uh, and um, you know, all, all these major publications, they're all Russian propaganda also, because they have in the past reported on um, Azov. So, you know, some people say, uh, mockingly, like, oh, so I guess the, the Russian Putin has infiltrated, you know, the New York Times years ago and, and the FBI when it was investigating far-right people linked to Azov. And some of these NAFO people are, you know, think, yes, that, that must be the case. And so... Well, I mean, it does, it does sound obviously crazy. I mean, it's completely absurd. But this goes back to this whole, like, fascist, paranoid claim that, you know, the U.S. government is run by, by communists... You know these ultra far right 
uh, cold warriors who thought that, like, you know, like FDR was surrounded by communists and Eisenhower was surrounded by communists. And, you know, there these anti-Semites who referred to Roosevelt as like Rosenfeld and, mm-hmm. and you know, this this joke that like, um, you know, the CIA is supposedly run by communists and the purging of the State Department for anyone who speaks Russian is a communist. Like this kind of fascist paranoia is decades old. Anyone, yeah. anyone who doesn't support Hitler is a communist. Stradner once tweeted, she said, if you want to learn what mathematic infinity means or what mathematics infinity means, just observe the number of Russian mouthpieces in the United States. You know, that's um, and uh, there's nothing more fun for NAFO than to gaslight Russian propagandists. Um, and then so after this article came out, she goes, there's a campaign against information warfare analysts. And today's article was from a source enjoying a boost from sanctioned outlets, one of which is controlled by Russian intel. They tried to discredit comma, make no mistake, they will go after more people, but it won't work. This is not a conspiracy theory. Um, and she's talking about, you know, some Russian website that, pe- that is allegedly connected to Russian intelligence republished my blog without my knowledge or consent. And, you know, no one, it had nothing to do with the numbers this thing did on Twitter. Um, and yet, you know, because this obscure website publishes it, that means I've been boosted and this is all part of a Russian intel thing. And then she... Yeah, I mean, any, anyone who's ever written an article on like a blog or an independent news website, you know that people frequently republish your article. They don't ask for permission. You know, that's just part of the internet, like blogging culture, right? Mm-hmm. So if someone... At one of these websites you've never even like read or had nothing to do with, if they republish one of your articles, then these propagandists who work for these Western think tanks or Ukrainian media outlets or whatever, they accuse you of being like linked to Russia because this website that is supposedly linked to the Kremlin published something that you didn't even know about without your permission. And I mean, that that's their methodology. And it's so sloppy, but they don't they don't need to be accurate because it's all just a smear campaign to try to distract from the undeniable fact that the guy who founded this popular propaganda campaign that is being boosted by the U.S. government and the Kiev Post and Western media outlets and politicians, you know, U.S. sitting Congress people, the guy who founded it is literally a Nazi. And it's, you know, they say, oh, he's not our found- he's not our leader. We're this uh, we're this decentralized, organic movement, leaderless movement. And um, and yet. It's it seems like a cult based on, you know, this guy. I don't know how anyone could defend this guy, but 99% of NAFO has gotten behind him and not only said, oh, don't worry about this. It's no big deal, but actually given him credit like, wow, you've you've really grown as a person like you're you've really handled this with grace um, is some of the comments they make. And then they all a lot of there was something i didn't get into there's a new thing called well it's not exactly new but there's something called dark nafo and um so the guy who starts nafo is a polish holocaust denier or nazi whatever you want to call him definitely anti-semitic and you know also and, not- and i just really briefly sorry to cut you off yeah, no. there's so many details here i just want to show highlight some of these tweets from again this is the guy who founded nafo at comma underscore camellia. He, he, had, he has this meme here, 
and it, there's this meme and it's this guy talking to a therapist and the therapist has like a, you know, a, a Jewish skull cap. And he says, but why would they use wooden doors if they were, uh, I can't read here, but why would they use wooden doors if it was a gas chamber? And then the therapist who there's like this anti-Semitic meme of him, like clasping his hands. And it says the goyim no, shut it down. So he's yeah, literally now engaged in Holocaust revisionism, denying that Jews were put into gas chambers in Nazi and like, Germany. What's the, what's the joke? I would like someone to explain what is humorous about this. Like, let's just pretend it's not offensive. Like, what is actually the funny component of this? It's it's literally the what's funny is the Holocaust denial. Like, oh, it, you know, look at us. But and then and then thing you've got. And then, well, speaking now, of supposedly yeah. funny jokes, here he repeatedly tweets video of people during the Black Lives Matter protesters, people driving their cars into the protesters. And Kama said, this is this is extremely based. And he re repeatedly said that and said it was funny. And then yeah. here, here are some other examples. I mean, he also it w openly praised Nazi and white supremacist terrorists and mass murderers. I mean, this guy, like, he is a textbook fascist, a textbook Nazi. He said it's nice, like he went in these these like uh, internet things and said like, "What dictator are you?" And he just said Adolf Hitler, and it's he said nice. Like mm. this guy openly, he admires Hitler. He's a Holocaust denier, and people are like, "Oh, well, you know, he has a a, a, a you know a, a past that is very controversial, but he's moved away from that past." Yeah, he deleted some pro-Nazi tweets. This guy's yeah, a Nazi. Actually, scroll down to the bottom. He he deleted some two thousand like eight hundred jokes of. And one of them, if you actually, yeah, that the first one, look, I mean, so someone, they have a lecture on right-wing terrorism, and his response is, if you hire clowns, don't be surprised when you're left with a circus. This isn't a joke. Like This is just him saying, thinking that, you know, bringing attention to right-wing terrorism is like, I don't, I don't know. Yeah, only one solution to all this. He's, he's an exterminationist. I mean, yeah, and again, him praising people who run their cars into into Black Lives Matter protests. Here, he he praises the like uh, the Crusaders. He, yeah, he's I'm, a Crusader. I think I assume that's like um, some asylum seeker or migrant who's being abused or you know in the bottom image and. And the top is Christian crusaders fighting a war against Ottoman Turkey, against Muslims. And, and the other one is rediscover your roots. And it's Generation Europa, which is a fascist group, white supremacist group. And the other line is, oh, but this was years ago, years ago. But I mean, this one's from three years ago, but some of the more other ones are from 2020. Like the pandemic was, we were like six months into the pandemic when some of this stuff was being tweeted. Like I, we're the same age. So I don't buy this, you know, I can't, I'm not ever been part of like gaming culture so i don't know maybe there's some credence to this oh he's just a gamer and they're all not i don't know but <laughs> unless that's what you're going for i mean i don't i can't really get i can't imagine having posted this stuff two years ago at the age of 24 and now at the age of 26 i'm you know i i've i'm a new person um because also and yet, take all these people they they made this campaign of i stand with comma as if he's like a victim yeah. Because you expose that he's a Nazi. 
and this is this is what I meant, like the cult-like stuff. Like they're saying, oh, we don't have any leaders, but they idolize this guy, and it's actually splintered uh, Nafo to some extent over people. The fact that um, there's this thing called Dark Nafo, and part of Dark Nafo's whole thing is that he shouldn't have even apologized to begin with, and that, that he messed up for apologizing and even acknowledging any of this stuff. And um, the guy who starts Dark Nafo is literally this Polish like psychopath gore artist. I mean, a lot of this, I don't know that you could, we could even show some of this stuff on screen. Like he's clearly working in some cases from a reference of like some, presumably a Russian soldier who's like had their face bashed in and he's making these crazy psychotic captions, like, you know, feed me blood or whatever. And, and saying, you know, kind of like some of these LaRouche people that maybe we'll get come to one. They, they both think that like war crimes are based um, that's what the dark NAFO thing is about. And then so one of these founders of NAFO makes a post saying after, you know, this whole Holocaust thread thing comes to light saying, hey, new NAFO people, Kama is our overlord. Uh, you don't you like you can't talk shit about him. And and then, you know, a few people comment like, well, wait, I thought we we're this decentralized movement. Like, I don't get why we're, you know, we're behind. And then. And that is so offensive that she now leaves NAFO and then joins Dark NAFO, which is this extremist like faction. But now it's become this other thing where Dark NAFO means, um, uh, yeah, getting rid of your Shiba Inu profile. And I mean, it's yeah, I mean, here's a Dark NAFO meme. Yeah. It has like this big buff uh, dog here. And it says, kill all Moskals, which is like a slur for Russians. So kill all Russians shit on their corpses laugh about it that that's that's what we're talking about here yeah and there's there's another example in there somewhere someone um you know someone they've identified as a russian troll they go through their profile and see that the guy he has a cat that died and so they take the cat and put make it into a like a nafo dog and start spamming him with pictures of his dead cat and this is like a dark nafo this is, I think they're like saying, oh, I got dark NAFO on him or something. And um, it's, they're, they're, you know, being complete trolls, it's, it's almost like you don't want to give them attention because it just gives them oxygen. And yet they are really, they're kind of been having a meltdown over all this. And there's all this miscellaneous drama of, you know, NAFO people saying, I can't take it anymore. All this infighting and all this drama, it's all too much. Even Adam... Kinzinger, the like NAFO congressman, is uh he was acknowledging it, being like, you know, NAFO people, like, calm down, like, we'll get through this, like, try not to don't succumb to the infighting, you know. And um, so they're this has really taken a toll on them. And Kinzinger yeah, I mean, is this is I want to stress this point. Yeah. This is a sitting US congressman, Adam Kinzinger, who's become like a close friend of like the CIA. He's always pushing their line and everything. He's extremely anti-Russian, very pro-war. And he changed his profile photo to NAFO. And he constantly posts NAFO memes, like every single day. So th this, this is active promotion by sitting U.S. Congress people of this movement that was founded by a Nazi. And then they're like, don't, don't turn on each other. This is a crisis. We'll get over it. Just accept the fact that you're involved in a campaign founded by a Nazi and deny yeah. it. Yeah, and he, he went further than that, too, because... Um... One of the, uh, they call them the forgers, the people who make the Shiba Inu pictures. And so one of the top forgers makes a post, you know, 
saying, you know, we got to have commas back or whatever. And Kinzinger comments some, to the effect of, guys, stop. You're bringing, you know, this, you're all bringing attention to this by, you know, yourselves. And, you know, let's just, you know, this isn't, no one's making a big deal about this. So let's just move on. And then someone else comments, oh, it's a flex, commas, unbreakable. And then Kinzinger likes that comment. So, <laughs> you know, and, and this is the guy who said, Kinzinger, who's now, his name is now Adam Kinzinger, hashtag fella. Like, he's, he's gone through, like, three is now part of his name. Fellas. Yeah. No, and, and he, this is the guy who said that Ilhan Omar needs to be stripped of her committee assignments for saying it's all about the Benjamins and, and, um, and is also, you know, tried to be the, the leading, like, anti-Trump Republican when it comes to January 6th. And, um, you know, he's, uh, he, he, uh, you know, being this like anti-Trump Republican, he realizes he's not going to get reelected. Um, and so he's leaving Congress, which I think is part of what's given him this permission to just become completely unhinged. I mean, no one, there's no one, I don't think in Washington who has been as a cheerleader for like World War III than him, maybe Paul Massaro. I don't even want to talk about him, but like, uh, but um, Kinzinger is, you know, in the wake of January 6th, that he's dedicating his like, career to fighting far-right extremism. And yet, when it comes to this, he wants nothing to do with it. Another, um, you know, Alexander Reed Ross, who's, like, supposed to be an expert on far-right terrorism, and his whole thing is... The... And, and he works at a neoconservative think tank alongside, like, former CIA... Uh, agents alongside former FBI and police officers. And he claims to be like this anarchist researcher who's quite literally working alongside spooks. His whole thesis is that like, you know, we're the real fascists. And, um, and yet his response to this was if you, something like, you know, if Shiba Inus have anything to do with you supporting genocide, that you need to throw your computer in a bat. Like, it, and then someone else was, uh, made a tweet about um what's his name uh lebanese uh, a guy oz k katergy yeah he was like and a about... neocon very pro-war he, he used to do he used to write he's like from this vice hipster pipeline to neo like vice hipster to neocon pipeline he used to do articles for vice where like he took viagra and like wrote this article about like boner pills and like using uh glasses i can't see and all this like ridiculous stuff and now he's just like a full-on pro-war, bloodthirsty neocon. Well, someone was making the point that he, being someone who's so concerned about like anti-Semitism in the Labour Party, is perfectly okay with this guy because he's got he, you know, his NAFO fellow was made by Kama, and he's made comments like, "Oh, if you want a fellow, you got to go to Kama. He's your man." And um, and so someone I think from Progressive International made a post about this hypocrisy on his part, and you know, uh, Alexander Reed Ross respond something to the effect of like, are you suggesting that everyone with a Shibu Inu profile is a Nazi, is part of some Nazi psychological operation? Like he can only, that's his only response to this is to like, I'm the problem for bringing attention to this. So, I mean, I think the, I tried to, you know, I was calling it hashtag NAFOgate and I didn't really, I was naive to think that that might actually become something. But for me, NAFOgate is all these people just showing their asses on, you know, that they have to ignore this and dismiss it and minimize it and act like it's, it's nothing. But, you know, like with this, um, this crazy person who attacked, um, uh, Nancy Pelosi's husband and, you know, they're going through all the, his social media posts of uh, another full on Nazi, literal Nazi. Yeah. And it's more extreme than in some cases in this NAFO guy, but like it, 
reminded me of this thread. You know, it's like this this looks like the kind of thread that will be relevant again one day when someone goes out and starts shooting people, you know, um, especially the dark NAFO person I was talking about. I mean, it's truly psychopathic stuff. And he's, you know, part of that like community. So it's all just super sick and twisted. And um, yeah, it's, I, um, I, I wanted to write some follow-up stuff about this, but I you mean, know, the fact that like, no, like, mainstream journalist is willing to write some kind of follow-up about it i mean there was even a a new there's been there since this stuff have come out there's been even more puff pieces that credit this guy comma as the founder and they they have only good things to say about him and and nafo and how it's the future of information war i mean um well, even well, the wait, wait founder to hear about Werner von braun wait to hear about Werner von braun and and nasa right like uh this isn't necessarily new like just erasing these this Nazi history and, and praising some of these people, but it, it is definitely extremely hypocritical. Sorry, I cut you off there. Go ahead. No, I, was just gonna say, I mean, even like the founder of Bellingcat is now just made it. He was at some conference and gave a shout out to NAFO for building this pro-Ukraine community. And, you know, the whole thing, the whole thing that everyone loves NAFO is that they're going to win the information war. And it's like, wow, how genius is this that to fight the information war against Russia's information war about denazifying ukraine which is really if anything just nazifying the country more than ever before i mean true because if anything i think it's like 2014 maidan all that facilitated the banderization of ukraine and now this invasion is i think facilitating the actual nazification of the country you know now azov and all those people are truly considered heroes and you know it's truly like the best thing that's ever happened to them this invasion um in terms of their prestige and propaganda and everything but um uh sorry i got off track once again but um oh yeah so to fight this propaganda about you know Zelensky is leading a nazi regime and so forth so on and so forth the west and nato or wherever says okay we got to fight this by creating this internet army led by a nazi and full of crazy people that will need to be denazified at some point if you know <laughs> like it's it's just insane. I mean, it's it's really. I mean, the it, more also about this guy, comma. He works for Saint Javelin, which is officially now the parent company of NAFO, this thing that's supposedly totally decentralized and has no real leadership. He works full time for the official parent company, which is then you know, as I mentioned, tied to Georgian Legion and Ukrainian World Congress and and all this stuff. So he is base. If if they have a leader, it is him. You know, and he's not officially like president of NAFO, but I mean, the fact that the way that they have all doubled down and rallied behind this guy is almost more incriminating or I, I yeah, I think it's more incriminating than his Twitter thread itself. Yeah. And I mean, this again, you said you don't know how organic it is. I mean, it's at the very least, even if it wasn't directly created by like the CIA or the Pentagon or whatever, I think that's a possibility. But even if it wasn't well, it was created by this guy, this Nazi, but like, even if it wasn't from the very beginning promoted by like the Pentagon or CIA, at the very least, they later joined on oh, yeah. and have been openly promoting it. Here is an official verified Twitter account from the U.S. military, the U.S. military's cyber brigade, and they're promoting NAFO openly. So even if they didn't have a hand directly in helping to popularize it, they're promoting it now. And even more incriminating, 
Here is the Ministry of Defense of Ukraine, the official verified Twitter account, saying, we usually express gratitude to our international partners for the security assistance, but today we want to give a shout out to a unique entity, North Atlantic Fellas Organization. Thanks for your fierce fight against Kremlin's propaganda and trolls. Now, that's the irony of the century, trolls. I mean, anyone who said a mild critical word about far-right groups in Ukraine or who's called for a peaceful settlement and diplomacy and the end of Western billions of dollars of weapons flooding into Ukraine, you know that if you say a single critical word, you're flooded with dozens of trolls, of NAFO mm -hmm. trolls, and yet they, they talk about Kremlin trolls. So also the I defense mean, minister of Ukraine, Kamala made his fella. Like there's, there a, there's a big win for the, that. That's really helping you to win the information war is to have the defense minister of Ukraine have a fella made by this, you know, guy who I think it's totally fair to call him a Nazi, you know? Um, so yeah, it's the biggest shooting. It's like the information warriors could not have shot themselves in the foot more. I mean, if, there, if, you know, if there was a genius Russian psyop this would be it you know in terms like that's my favorite conspiracy theory now is that nafo is actually a um a russian operation too i mean i don't think this but that, <laughs> um to discredit support for nato that's actually something that um louise mensch she she was propagating oh, that conspiracy theory because once they were coming out that's because that's what happens all these people support nafo until they're on the receiving end including members of NAFO, because then they get in some little drama, minor disagreement about something, and then they get flooded with messages, often privately. And even then, it's like they go, people they're as ruthless as possible, even amongst themselves. Um, I mean, there was an issue of one of them making death threats against another, and then they got kicked out of their discord, and then there was a whole big thing about this is an information warfare against within NAFO, against other NAFO fellas. <laughs> It's I, I really think this stuff is, you know, it's um they're they're bragging about how they're bigger and better than ever. But they're I think they're kind of spiraling. And hopefully yeah. this is, you know, the beginning of the end. But yeah. And this is actually a segue here. Good segue. I think we're in like a very dangerous moment where the. It's very clear that the West is in a serious political and economic crisis in Europe in particular. You have the rise of far right groups because largely because of the complete failure of these neoliberal centrist parties that have governed for decades and overseen austerity and declining living standards and cutting social programs and healthcare and education. And obviously in the U.S. as well, you have the rise of these far right groups and there's a major crisis of institutional legitimacy. And of course, that provides opportunity for the left, but it also provides very fertile ground for the far right, for fascist extreme groups. And they are the ones who they have access to the media, unlike the left, which is always isolated from the media. They have billionaire oligarch supporters like Peter Thiel and others. They have mainstream political parties like the Republican Party or in Europe, there are far right parties that are mainstream and they're ascendant. They're on the rise. And you get this false this false dichotomy, right, where anyone who criticizes the NATO proxy war in Ukraine, in which NATO is essentially using Ukrainians as cannon fodder in this proxy war against Russia, as U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin said, to weaken Russia, that if you criticize this war, then you're then the liberals accuse you of being like a Trump supporter or far right. 
And so what, what's, hap what's happened is that there's this demonization of the anti-war movement and anyone who calls for diplomacy. We saw this disgraceful uh, capitulation by the 30 members of the Democratic Party of the Progressive Caucus who signed this very mainstream, very milquetoast letter calling basically for mild diplomacy. I mean, but it was couched in all of this, you know, vociferous condemnation of Russia and call for military support for Ukraine. It was the most milquetoast possible call for diplomacy. And even now calling for diplomacy is seen as capitulation. And even worse, it's being portrayed as like supporting the far right. So you see this false dichotomy between the neoliberal center and the far right. And this has really pushed politics further and further to the right everywhere, pushed, you know, liberals more and more to the right as well in openly calling for war and sending more weapons and opposing diplomacy. And then throwing into this disastrous mix, you have the, these far right groups like this cult of LaRouche, Lyndon LaRouche, who himself was a fascist. He, I did a separate uh, episode with friend Marlon Edinger um, talking about Lyndon LaRouche and you know, his work with neo-Nazi groups and the KKK and white supremacists in the U.S. He, he also told his cult followers to go beat up communists with nunchucks. I mean, this guy is a fascist. I mean, he recently, he died two years ago, but uh, three years ago now, but he, his cult is still influential. And now you see some members of his cult have protested members of the squad, right? Like these uh, social Democrats in the Democratic Party like uh, AOC, and they criticized her rightfully for supporting this proxy war and not calling for diplomacy. But then the fact that the people criticizing her are themselves from this far right cult, it only further demonizes the anti-war movement. It further, uh, you know, divides the anti-war movement. So you have done a good service in documenting who this group is, this LaRouche cult, and the irony that this LaRouche cult itself, Lenin LaRouche, had his, has a history of supporting Ukrainian Nazis because LaRouche was viciously anti-communist against the Soviet Union. So you just published this article at your uh, Medium blog, which is um, masrobeson.medium.com. Uh, I have the link in the description below. And your article is called LaRouche's Ukrainian Nazi Legacy hypocrisy of LaRoucheite efforts to lead anti-war movement. I think this, you know, I, again, I have a separate video on this. I've said a lot about it. I, don't, I'm, I won't relitigate it, but I think this is extremely suspicious that the anti-war movement in the U.S., which has always been targeted by U.S. police agencies and spies for destabilization and infiltration, it's very strange and suspicious that these LaRoucheites from this cult that has a long history of being linked to intelligence agencies are now disrupting the anti-war movement Talk about this article that you did here about LaRouche's Ukrainian Nazi legacy and why people should know about this, why this is important today. Well, first of all, it's I called the introduction um, concern troll, and I think that's really what they're doing with um, going after the squad members. Because why are they targeting the squad members in particular? Because their whole thing is about green fascism and they want to out, they want to defeat, they want, they're going after the people who support the Green New Deal because apparently the Varushites are like the only people on earth who are still threatened by the concept of the Green New Deal. And, um, <laughs> which they, Joe Biden has not met, made a single mention of. Like it's never going to happen under Biden, but yeah, that's the it, real threat. 
And and by the way, I should point out, sorry to cut you off, but no. when they say green fascism, they don't mean like there is an actual green fascism. Like there are fascists who who say, you know, we need to like uh, kill all the refugees and all this stuff and whatever. But when they say green fascism, they mean anyone who acknowledges climate change is real because they think it's all part of a depopulation plot because everyone is anyone who doesn't support 12 trillion human beings on Earth and using coal powered plants and massive industrialization. If you believe that climate change is real, then you're a Malthusian and you're a fascist. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, before getting further into that, I mean, the it's like I understand why people, especially people who don't know about Varouche and their cult, because it's pretty obscure these days. You understandably, you know, it's understandable if you assume that they just aren't around anymore. Kind of like I thought that about the OUNB. And um, like the OUNB, their cult lives on past the death of their cult leader. And um, in some ways, it really takes off even more so after they've, you know, been able to ditch that baggage and can, you know, kind of claim they they can like sort of reinvent themselves a bit. And um, but I understand the anger and the hypocrisy, of course, with, you know, the Democrats and people are just so there's no, you know, Aside from like what Code Pink and, you know, some other organizations, there's no like anti-war movement in this country. And so I think people are hoping that these Varushites, whether or not they realize that they're Varushites, will inspire other people to do this, to go up to, you know, confront um, Democrats and other Congress people and people in government about, um, you know, the U.S. role in this extremely dangerous conflict. And... Um, but now they're just setting it up so that if anyone else follows in their footsteps, you know, they'll all the Congress people who are getting protests in that way are all just going to assume they're all Varushites, you know. And so and unfortunately, um, like AOC and Ilhan Omar have reverted to, you know, describing them as like Russian disinformation artists. Um, although really, I mean, the Varush movement is a very uh, homegrown fascist. I mean, there's the. the the classic book on LaRouche um, by Dennis King called LaRouche and the New American Fascism. So, yes, they basically are cheerleading Russia's uh, Russia in this conflict, but they're not. I mean, this is a homegrown movement. And um, but aside from that, I think the thing that's most or one of the things that's very distressing about the capitulation of these progressive Democrats is that now they've even bought into this false dichotomy that you either have to support complete 100% Ukrainian victory or you know anything less than that is you're advocating for Ukraine to surrender. Um, the LaRouche people, well, in particular, Diane Saar, who kind of orchestrated these, these uh, stunts of targeting AOC and others in New York specifically, two days after Russia invaded Ukraine, she literally tweeted, Zelensky should surrender. So, you know, they're just the caricature of what, you know, people try to pick the anti-war movement as. Meanwhile, you know, if, so if you say we should support some kind of diplomacy and so this doesn't spiral out into nuclear Armageddon, you're you'll be accused of advocating or supporting genocide of Ukrainians. And yet it's perfectly OK to say, you know, on any mainstream platform or whatever, that Ukraine should fight to the last Ukrainian rather than surrender and an inch of its territory. So it's perfectly okay to say 40 million Ukrainians, an inch of dirt, 40 million Ukrainians, an inch of dirt. Let's go with the inch of dirt. That's more important. And that's not advocating for genocide of Ukrainians or anti-Ukrainian in nature, but 
you know, because there's also this idea that if, if there's going to be any negotiated settlement, that Ukraine will have to make all the concessions. Why can't the United States make the concessions? Do you think Putin wouldn't pull out of Ukraine if we said we'd abolish NATO or, you know, something like to, you know, uh, alleviate the, the tensions that have been building for years between Russia and the United States? Or we said we're going to we want to work negotiate arms control or we're going to maybe acknowledge that the Soviet Union won World War II. Like there's just so many things that you concessions that the United States could make um, that I don't really buy into this argument that if there's going to be diplomacy that Ukraine has to basically surrender. You know, it's it's this. And yet the LaRouche people getting back to that, they basically support this dichotomy that, you know, um, one side has to completely like dominate the other. And um, there was uh, Marlon Ettinger, who you mentioned, he, he did a thing with um, Trunon. And uh, unfortunately, I haven't, I haven't listened to your interview with him, but I did listen to Trunon. So I don't know if he talked about this um, on Multipolarista also. But, you know, he was saying that he was speaking with Jackson Hinkle, who's like now this, he's this Twitch streamer who's now involved in the you don't even want to talk about this stuff because it's so stupid, but MAGA communism and the LaRouche movement now, he's been sucked into that as like one of their spokespeople. And he was talking to him at this conference that they had two days after the AOC stunt, which kind of sheds light on the purpose of that. It was a publicity stunt to advertise their conference, which was called Build the New Paradigm, Defeat Green Fascism. And, um, but so he was talking to, uh, Hinkle and Hinkle's going on about, and he's standing there next to Nick Brana, head of movement for People's Party, and and other guys, and they're all being like, "Yeah, Russia." This basically saying that Russian war crimes are based, and the, the, this Russian general who's called the cannibal is so based because he he doesn't believe in the surgical strike BS. He just goes in and like wants to blow everything up. So, you know, that's not anti-war. That's pro-war. You know, that's uh, and um. But to get into the, the hypocrisy, really, of the LaRoucheite movement claiming to be so interested about Banderites and Ukrainian neo-Nazis. Actually, let me just back up a little bit with, um, well, their whole thing, what this really comes out of their concern about neo-Nazis in Ukraine, is all to bolster their um, efforts to depict Obama as a Nazi tyrant. And, you know, one of the things they were known for um, when Obama was president, it was this image of Obama with a Hitler mustache. And um, yeah, right there. And, and so there's Diane Saar at Occupy Wall Street, again, because they have to co-op. They just infiltrate and co-opt and lie and everything. That's their M.O. Um, uh, they tried to co-opt Occupy Wall Street and they're tabling with these Obama's Hitler images. And so when... We, we sorry, to, sorry to cut you off, but we should yeah. point out that LaRouche himself ran for many years for president as a perennial, you know, gadfly candidate, and he ran as a Democrat. And the irony is that around the time of the Obama administration, the LaRouche cult, they kind of made a strategic decision to switch to the Republicans. And now they, they support the Republicans. I mean, they still try to run candidates as independents, but for the most part, after, during and after Obama, they started supporting Republicans and they were very pro-Trump. Yeah. Yeah, they were warning, I mean, that's also, they were warning about a coup against Trump, like almost as soon as he took office. And they were putting out things saying, jail Obama 
and Soros for treason because they're trying to organize another Nazi color revolution, but against Trump, because that's, you know, what they, this is what this is all about. Cause it's all, and you know, you see people like Lee Stranahan and Jack Posobiec or however you say it. And these right-wingers who ostensibly are concerned about Democrats supporting, you know, their whole thing is just to try to place this on the democratic party. And it's a, and it's a narrative that's appealing. I know from experience as a left winger, it's also appealing to point out that the Democrats support neo-Nazis in Ukraine. But it's it's a it's a slippery slope because they're you know kind of like with Christopher Freeland, all the attention's on Christopher Freeland, Nazi grandfather. But meanwhile, the Conservative Party is like much more supportive and in, and close to the actual OUNB and whatnot. So. Yeah, I mean, it's become, I talk about this a lot, it's become like a reverse lesser evilism, yeah. where, you know, for years, the argument was, you always have to support the Democrat who's the lesser evil. But now they say the Republicans, the far right Republicans are the lesser evil. Trump is supposedly the lesser evil, ignoring the fact that when Trump was president, and he appointed John Bolton, arch neocon, as his national security advisor, the U.S. unilaterally withdrew from the INF Treaty, the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, which is what set the stage for this new escalation of the war in Ukraine, because it said that Ukraine could host intermediate range ballistic missiles with nuclear warheads aimed at Moscow. So it was Trump that actually sabotaged the architecture of the, the arms deals with Russia that prevented the escalation of the war. Obviously, the Democrats bear responsibility as well, but it was also Trump who sent so-called lethal military aid that even Obama wouldn't send. He sent so-called non-lethal military aid, which is, you know, propaganda. It's like officer-involved shooting or whatever. But the point is that the Trump administration sent military equipment and weapons to Ukraine that even Obama wouldn't send. And yet we're, supposed to, we're, we're told that supposedly Trump is the anti-war alternative, ignoring that you know, he murdered Qasem Soleimani, one of the top officials in the Iranian government. He escalated the war in Afghanistan. He escalated the war in Yemen. He started a war in Venezuela, basically. So, like, I mean, it's just it's preposterous. But that's the argument they use. And again, I understand why it's appealing to people, because it is true that the Democrats are warmongers as well. But that doesn't mean the Republicans are any less warmongers. Yeah, no, it's it's ridiculous to try to, you know, pin this all on the Democrats and let the Republicans off the hook. But that is kind of what the LaRouchites are going for, because they want to draw people away from the left or from the Democratic Party and draw them into this to their cult. And um, for me, you know, I I was in seventh grade when Obama was elected and I didn't really know anything but i had i thought obama was gonna like be bernie sanders on steroids i thought he was gonna end the wars and end global hunger and all this stuff i don't know where i got this idea i mean i guess just you know change hope and change i, I mean to be fair you were in seventh grade yeah but okay <laughs> but then so then i was in high school when the maidan happens and um i was smoking a lot of weed in those days i don't really i'm a little fuzzy on the chronology of stuff or where where i was at and what I was thinking, but for me, it was, it really shattered a lot for me. And I think was kind of radicalizing this idea that Obama would then like orchestrate a neo-Nazi coup in Ukraine, you know, and I'm now, I'm kind of agnostic about the role of Obama. And I'm also, you know, and I won't go down that whole rabbit hole, but 
Um, I mean, but, I see what uh, you're saying. Like, just, just, just so I, for people who don't know, like Victoria Newland, this neoconservative who's now third in the command in the State Department. I mean, she clearly knew about the coup. She was involved. But whether or not like Obama personally approved it or whatever, I mean, these these conversations are hard to have because, of course, the nature, the very nature of covert operations and coups is that they're covert, right? And even like the details of the 1953 coup in Iran and 54 coup in Guatemala and 73 coup in Chile, like we still don't even know all of the exact details mm-hmm. about those coups. Like the U.S. was involved in the Maidan coup, but whether or not it was personally approved by Obama, well, we might mean we never know. Well, but also like Obama was on CNN and he said that, you know, admitted that the U.S. had brokered a deal to end the protests and basically, you know, hold early elections and to, you know, try to... um What's the word to like, you know, uh, negotiate some kind of transitional transition away from Yanukovych and to end things peacefully. And the like right sector and the other um, extremists involved um, didn't accept that. And then you have this massacre, the snipers massacre, which, again, it's like one of those things you're not allowed to talk about. But um, I mean, it, you should re- everyone should read. Ivan Kopchanovsky's essay, and he's done a lot of work on this massacre, and it was very blatantly a false flag, which, you know, then is what led to the overthrow or the government, or rather what led to Yanukovych fleeing the country. And so, you know, I don't know that Obama wanted a coup, you know, um, but, you know, also he was kind of, Joe Biden was his point person on Ukraine, and who was one of his point people on Ukraine was uh, Michael Carpenter who is, um, you know, he was the, I think he was Tony Blinken's successor as the managing director of the Penn Biden Center for Global Diplomacy. And, um, you know, Robbie Martin, who you had on recently, um, I think maybe yesterday, the day before, tweeted a a screenshot of an interview he did with, or he spoke to Robert Kagan, um, who, isn't that, that's Newland's husband, right? Yeah. And Victoria so, Newland's husband is the, is the arch neocon Robert Kagan, one of the co-founders of the project for the New American Century. Yeah, and he um, and he was basically mocking Obama's fear of World War III, and he was saying that Obama took the position that I don't want a World War III over Ukraine, and that Ukraine is uh, part of Russia's sphere of influence, or at least it's much more important to them than it is to us. So you know, it doesn't make sense to escalate because you know we can't. You know, they they're gonna. They're willing to go further than we are, or at least than Obama was. And, um, you know, the Biden administration, people who staffed the Biden administration were part of the minority of the Obama administration in on that issue. They wanted to arm Ukraine. Michael Carpenter, speaking to the Center for U.S.-Ukraine Relations, a conference, which is a straight up OUNB front. I don't know. We really have time to get into that, but it's just a fact. Um, Carpenter is saying, talking about, he, he kind of corrected himself or stopped himself from straight up saying that the Obama administration as a whole was afraid of its own shadow. He then corrected himself to say certain people. But I think it's pretty clear he included Obama in that group of people. So the, um, you know, so I, I just think, you know, and apparently now Obama was uh, around the time that the Progressive Caucus put out this letter. Um, Obama was basically... Um, saying the same thing that you know that um what's so concerning is that the complete the communications between russia and the united states are at its lowest point you know since the height of the cold war and so is obama a putin puppet well according to ukrainian 
nationalists, uh, kind of, yeah. And, um, but now everyone's like a banderite, you know? Now everyone takes this position that, you know, if you, the only way to end the war is to escalate it further. You know, the ABN that we mentioned at the beginning, the Anti-Bolshevik Bloc of Nations, which is led by the OUNB, they were preaching the literally saying that World War III was inevitable throughout much of the Cold War. And then maybe around the second half of the Cold War, they started to say, oh, well, actually supporting us is the only alternative to um, nuclear war. And, you know, now that's kind of now it's like Paul Massaro, this, you know, NAFO celebrity guy who's an advisor to the um, uh, what is it, OSCE. Um, no, no, to the Helsinki Commission which is a government agency created by Congress. And so he's uh, an advisor to those uh, members of Congress who are involved in the Helsinki Commission. Um, you know, basically just taking these extreme positions that, you know, the, the only way to end the war is complete total Ukrainian victory and that you just got to keep going further and further and further. And that, you know, if you have any reservations about this and you're just, you know, a, you're a fool. And, um, you know, I mean, and then you see, going back to NAFO, like a lot, some of the NAFO people are very explicit. They want NATO to get involved in this, and they basically want World War III. And one of the, the NAFO founders, she had a tweet saying, well, we're all going to die one day, so just suck it up, you know? <laughs> so let's all die now. <laughs> yeah, like, might as well just get it over with. And um, so it, there is, and again, the LaRouche people too are extremely nihilistic about all this stuff as Marlon Ettinger was talking about. And, um, or as he witnessed, that was his impression from going to this conference. And, uh, but yeah, I mean, just to briefly, cause I don't know how much longer we're gonna go here, but so, okay. I don't know, people maybe have noticed my real life Ukraine emoji, but this is um, a lot of my files on the history of this ukraine um nazi collaborator stuff and a lot of this is cia files which i would not have access to were it not for the war crimes disclosure act also the larouche people will not be able to write about oumb without the war crimes war crimes disclosure act passed in 1998 well that was only possible thanks to congresswoman elizabeth holtzman who um was kind of basically like the aoc of her day and um uh her she rose to prominence as she was on um, the House like Committee for the Watergate investigations. And she was, you know, fresh into Congress, was grilling, would go further and grilling people. I think, you know, she was um, grilled uh, the vice president, Gerald Ford, about what kind of deal he was or sorry, I guess he was the president at that point and grilling him about whether he made some kind of deal with Nixon in order to pardon him and whatever. So. But also that year, her first year in Congress, she, her second year, learns that there's a, that the United States government has a list of Nazi uh, war criminals living in the United States and no one's doing anything about it. And then she dedicated the rest of her political career to what she called undoing that situation. And she led the campaign, the pressure campaign that led the uh, Department of Justice to create the Office of Special Investigations to hunt these Nazi war criminals. Well, incidentally, they, in large part, went after Ukrainians. Um, some of the first people they prosecuted, I think, were actually even disproportionately Ukrainian. Um, but And so LaRouche was, you know, Executive Intelligence Review, his magazine, was accusing Elizabeth Holtzman of 
creating this thing to run dirty tricks against the intelligence community. And of course, Varush himself, because it's all always, everything is going to be about Varush. And so everything, this was all just a cover to go after Varush. And so basically the, the big hypocrisy is that the Varush people were, um, they went crazy over the, not this Nazi hunting arm of the U.S. government. And they went so far as to declare John Demyanyuk, you can watch thing on Netflix about him, the devil next door. Um, that he was completely innocent. He was a guard at a death camp in uh, Sobobor. At the time, he was thought to be this infamous guard at Treblinka, a different extermination camp. But, you know, it's... They they, they, they didn't just, you know, they were... demand. They uh, insisted on his complete innocence and that this was all a setup by, you know, the British Zionist powers that be and that it's all a plot against America, blah, 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 blah. And um, the rhetoric of the LaRouche people and the OUNB people, um, Bandrites and other Ukrainian nationalists, was largely identical, except for the whole thing about it being a British conspiracy. It's otherwise, you know, their Ukrainian nationalist rants could have been lifted straight from the pages of LaRouche's magazine. And, um, and so then even um, this goes on for years. And, uh, oh, yeah, so they mobilize to defeat elizabeth holtzman when she runs for senate and so with their help this other guy squeaks through republican candidate uh alphonse d'amato and what does he do as a first-year congressman he doesn't he's not concerned about a list of nazi collaborators or watergate or, or anything like that he um his first year congressman introduces a resolution to declare june 30th ukrainian independence day june 30th 1941 being the pro-Nazi proclamation of uh, restoration of Ukrainian statehood declared by OUNB. And they tried to create a pro-Nazi puppet government in Ukraine and the Nazis didn't have it because weren't going to have it because they weren't interested in any kind of independence for Ukraine, which kind of set off the conflict between Ukrainian nationalists and Nazi Germany. So basically the Ukrainian nationalists or OUN, they weren't really anti-Nazi as they now like to claim they were. Really the Nazis were just extremely anti-Ukrainian. And, um, or at least the leadership, um, there were some who thought that that was the key to winning the war would be to, and so LaRouche actually ends up echoing that talking point made by certain Nazis and Ukrainian nationalists that the Nazis would have won the war if only they had supported, um, Ukrainian independence. And LaRouche even goes so far to say under the support of the, Wehr the Wehrmacht and actually the branch of the Nazi Germany that was supporting the OUN was the military intelligence. So he might, I don't know if he, you know, maybe he, he was onto something there, maybe knowingly or not. But then a couple of years later, uh, EIR, Executive Intelligence Review, does a, an interview with Slava Stetsko, who <clears throat> is at that point the leader of the anti-Bolshevik bloc of nations and is a leader of the OUNB. She then creates the OUNB political party, which I mentioned earlier that its paramilitary arm eventually goes off to do its own thing, and then 10 years ago or so created uh, right sector. So, and then now, of course, after Maidan starts to happen, the Varouche people are all concerned about OUNB and that the British sponsored the OUNB, which they did at the beginning of the Cold War. But, um, and, uh, but it's hypocritical because it's really, it's very transparently, it was all just about justifying and bolstering their campaign to depict Obama as the real Nazi and the Democrats are the real Nazis because 
LaRouche, many people will call him a neo-Nazi cult leader. And so the LaRouche people are basically saying, just like Lee Stranahan and Jack Posobiec and all these other Republicans and right-wingers who claim to be concerned about Ukrainian Democrats supporting neo-Nazis in Ukraine, um, they're just saying, we're not the neo-Nazis, you're the neo-Nazis, which is now like what everyone's doing now, because if you support or if you say anything critical, you're basically, you know, I'm, I've, I've like really, I've gotten used to this point to just being regularly accused of being a Russian neo-Nazi, you know, for, I guess, the crime of maybe not being quite nuanced enough about Ukrainian Nazis or something, you know, but the, I don't know, it's the worst people, it's just so blatantly hypocritical that they now claim to care about supporting nazis in ukraine they don't yeah it's... i mean given given the history of larouche himself collaborating with white supremacists and the ku klux klan and the american nazis i mean it's uh it's ridiculous but i mean we we should start wrapping up here because i know it's it's been a long longer than i had um told you we would go but um one final thing i want to talk about which is part of this like kind of mainstreamization of fascism which is very concerning i mean in general like in, in, in U.S. politics and European politics, fascism is just becoming completely mainstream. Uh, the Republican Party is basically a fascistic party. You have, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene and, and Steve King and these people who are just like straight up fascists. They call themselves like, a, you know, a Christian nationalists and they say Black Lives Matter is a terrorist organization and they spout white nationalist talking points. And meanwhile, like it is true that there are Democrats who are supporting Ukrainian Nazis. And what I'll conclude here with is an article that you published at over at your blog, um, which is masrobeson.medium.com. And this is from early October. It's titled, Now All of You Are Azov, Ukrainian Neo-Nazis Tour of the U.S. This is about a tour that the Azov fighters from this far-right, ultra-nationalist, fascist militia they visited the U.S. They were invited to speak in Washington. So let's just conclude going back to this topic of there is a real far right fascist movement in Ukraine, and it actually is getting support from Western governments. One point distinction that I think to make between Democrats and Republicans, I mean, it's not a perfect rule, but in large case, the Democrats that you see um, getting too close to these people, it's largely because they live in districts with a significant Ukrainian population, people who could potentially swing an election. The Republican, there's a, there's an image of showing the top members of Congress who are tweeting the most about Ukraine and Russia. And of course, top of the list is Adam Kinzinger. He's like the double tribute, triple whammy. He lives in Chicago, which is like the biggest hotbed of Ukrainian nationalism in the country. And, um, and then the NAFO thing. So put those two together and he tweets like more twice as much about Ukraine than any other member of Congress and basically cheerleading World War Three. The top Democrat to tweet about Ukraine is Bill Pascrell, who I think there's a picture somewhere in that article. Or otherwise, he's uh, can be seen with one of these people from Azov. And and years ago in a, at a, like another Ukrainian festival, he took a picture with someone from right sector USA. There was actually a short lived US branch of right sector. And the person, I think, even had a right sector shirt on. And so it's not like it was just, a you know, not like he could uh, totally ignorant about it. And uh, and then, um, yeah, I mean, there's so the Democrats who there's like an explanation to this of electoral politics, whereas the Republicans 
who are all gung-ho about the far right in Ukraine and whatever, they're just, you know, they think Russia is communist. And for them, a lot of this is just ideological. Um, and so it's, if anything, it's the Republicans who I think really ideologically support these people. And the Democrats, it's either playing politics, you know, like, I mean, for, I, I never lived in Chicago, but I lived in, in New York for several years and in, in the East Village in lower Manhattan, well before the Russian invasion. I mean, I haven't been back to the U.S. in a few years, but um, I remember, you know, in like uh, 2016, 2017, when they're, you know, at the, in the early stages of this Ukraine proxy war going on in, in Donbass, I would see like a bunch of posters in the East Village, I think on like 6th and 7th Street where yeah. you would have like these uh, Azov posters and like mm. portraying Putin as Hitler and all this. And there's like a Ukrainian nationalist bar over there that's pretty popular. So like these- Do you remember which one, which one you're talking about? No, okay. I'm not like a big bar guy, but it's yeah. on like, um, I, I think it's on like on 6th and Avenue A or 1st Ave or okay, something like that. you're talking about blue and gold? No, 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 no. There's another okay. one. It's, I'll have to look it up. But yeah, I mean, the point is that like, I think that area used to be called Little Ukraine. Yeah, but anyway, the point is, is that it's, like it's much littler, littler, but <laughs> it's more. Yeah, little. I mean, like there are these networks of Ukrainians, and I'm not saying every Ukrainian who lives in the U.S. and Canada is a fascist. No, I'm not saying that, but it's true that there were a lot of these Ukrainian families who were former Nazi collaborators and ultranationalists who, after World War II, and especially during the first Cold War, they immigrated to the U.S. and their ancestors, you know, not just Christy Friedland, many others. They became involved in local politics and they became involved in the Republican Party and the Ronald Reagan campaign uh, was definitely involved with a lot of these groups. Well, so he and here's an example. There's one of the, the biggest OUNB people in the United States, this guy, Oskar Blazinski, who um, was a, he's a lawyer. He's also pretty anti-Semitic. Um, he was a lawyer for some of these uh, Nazi Ukrainian Nazi collaborators and war, people who are accused of being war criminals by the Department of Justice. He was uh, an official advisor to Ukrainian Americans for Biden. But before the Rouge people get too excited about me proving them right about the Democrats and Ukrainian neo-Nazis, Ukrainians for Trump was straight up OUNB front group. Um, and the person who was the point person between the Trump campaign and Ukrainian Americans for Trump is now a lawyer for the U.S. leadership of OUNB, which is involved in this legal dispute. Uh, or there's just been this legal saga since uh 2019 um that involves the bandera people trying to uh, re-establish their dominance in little ukraine manhattan um i worked in that neighborhood uh for almost a year and um you know that's another like you said another kind of hotbed of ukraine nationalism although they've kind of gotten i guess gentrified out of existence a bit but um uh it's yeah i don't know it's real and it's important and it's influential and um i don't know if it's here to stay a lot of the people involved are they're getting up there they're like maybe about 70 years old and a lot of them cut their teeth politically in this campaign against the nazi hunting office of special investigations and um you know i think they feel like ideologically at least this war is like their biggest victory because now they feel like they've been totally they've been proven right about everything as far as they're concerned and uh 
it seems like, you know, much of, you know, a lot of people basically agree with them that, you know, it turns out the Ukrainian nationalists were right all along. And, you know, and so, again, that's why this this idea that the invasion is about denazifying or anything is so ridiculous because it's the biggest it's God's gift to them. Um, and it gets even more depressing when, you know, progressive caucus or fact or just members of the um, the most progressive part of the progressive caucus can't meet, you know, a majority of Americans support some kind of diplomacy in Ukraine, even if that means that Ukraine has to make some kind of concessions. And yet you can't really find anyone in Washington who will uh, agree with the, uh, or at least openly agree with where a majority of uh, Americans or Americans are at. Um, and it's like, if, if, if more than 50% of the United States supports diplomacy in Ukraine, you, you, you know, it's like worldwide got to be much more than that. Cause of course it's not just Americans votes and opinions that matter on this, because if this goes nuclear, it's everyone's dead. And, um, and so I think this, all this stuff is way too important to just seed leadership of, you know, what passes the anti-war movement in the country to this opportunistic cult that is only really concerned about its own prestige and recruiting more and more people into this cult. And, um, they really are kind of like the flip side of NAFO. I mean, it's, they're both extremely nihilistic and they both pro-war and um, they're going to kill us all if they have their way, you know, and um, it's uh, scary. But I'm I'm glad to have been able to drop a little bomb on NAFO and then drop a little bomb on the LaRouche people. But interestingly, with the NAFO people, I got they were all coming after me like crazy. The well, they have thing, a lot more, they have many more resources. <laughs> right. But the LaRouche thing, no one so far, I don't think maybe since this has started, but. No one has given me a single ounce of pushback for that article. I think because I don't know how I don't know that anyone can dispute the just utter hypocrisy of the Rouge people claiming to be so concerned about Ukrainian neo-Nazis. And so, I mean, lastly, the second part of Ilhan Omar's tweet where she makes, you know, includes a Russian emoji or flag of a, or emoji of a Russian flag in her tweet. That part was, you know will make you cringe. But the first part of her tweet where, you know, responding to um, this viral video or clip of the incident where these Lurushites uh, heckle her because she's the most recent, if you want to say, victim or target of this campaign, you know, her response was to say, I'm sorry, but you all are not anti-war activists. You're making a mockery of the anti-war movement. And she's exactly right. And, you know, it, only the people who are, she got dogpiles for that. People misinterpreting deliberately or not that she's talking about anyone who would work up the courage to uh to uh, confront her or any other member of congress about this but that's another thing that's so dangerous and self-defeating about this is that it's setting giving um you know all these members of congress an excuse that if they're ever confronted or someone tries to hold their feet to the fire um about you know what's going on uh, they now have an out to just be like, oh, well, you're you're part of the Larushite movement, or you were inspired by them, or this is all just some kind of cult thing, and you're all pro-Russian, whatever. And so it's actually it is exactly right that they're the ones making a mockery, and they're completely kneecapping 
the ability of any anti-war movement to get off the ground. And I hate, and um, it's just, yeah, I, I, it's, it's even more self-defeating, I think, than, or to, to uh, let these people take the initiative is even more embarrassing and self-defeating, I think, than the progressives, you know, uh, retracting what was called the world's smallest trial balloon for diplomacy. And, um, you know, someone commented on, uh, in response to this thing I wrote on the LaRouchite stuff that, um, you know, if we, if, if these people aren't, if these people, these provocateurs can't be stopped, it, it's like game over, you know? And, um, I don't know that's true, but it, it does kind of feel that way that it's just the, 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 as they say with the Trump era all the time, the walls are closing in, you know, um, for any kind of, uh, possibility to stop this before it gets too late because you know these things have a way of spiraling out of control yeah or making it impossible to articulate an alternative political vision which is right. the most frustrating thing about this is that we're always trapped in this binary of this this false uh debate between really republicans and democrats everything gets absorbed into gets sucked into the infinite uh, you know, density of the black hole of partisan politics. And it, it is what paralyzes people and, and prevents the free will to articulate a, an anti-war position, a left-wing position that isn't, you know, that isn't just going to support blindly the Democratic Party, but also isn't going to argue that the Republican Party is somehow our lesser evil. And, you know, we, we've gone over time here. Um, I'll just conclude here by saying that anyone who wants to learn more about all these issues really should check out Moss's work. He's done re excellent reporting over years now, and you can find that at two different places. I'll, I'll link to that in the description below. One is the banderalobby.substack.com, and this is a lot of really good research about these far-right uh, fascist Ukrainian ultranationalist networks. Um, not only in Ukraine, but also specifically in, in the U.S. and Canada. They have a lot of influence. And then you can also find some other reporting that he does over at masrobeson.medium.com. Uh, Ooks, kooks, and spooks. I have linked to his two reports below in the description below about the Nazi founder of NAFO and also about the LaRouche cult. And at that blog, you can also find his report on the U.S. government inviting or U.S. Congress people inviting Ukrainian fascists from Azov to to Washington. Um, Moss, uh, do you want to plug anything else? Uh, I guess people people can also they can find you at Twitter at Moss Robeson in two underscores. I guess the only thing I'd say is that the Substack Bandera Lobby blog is exclusively about OUNB. Um, I end up, I kind of can't help myself, but to make all these connections to OUNB and the other blog, but that one is kind of where I'm trying to branch out into other things. So there's another article there about the victims of communism. And I want to do a follow-up about that and, or victims of communism Memorial Foundation. Um, but um, yeah, no, that's it. And um, yeah, thank you so much for this. I, it's these things, this conversation could go on so long that, you know, in a lot of ways, we've just kind of scratched the surface. Um, if people feel like we're, you know, we're not,
trying to excuse the hypocrisy of Democrats. I think reading this thing I wrote about the Rushite, you'll find even more hypocrisy, more mind-blowing hypocrisy of Democrats and how they really have opened themselves up to, you know, uh, the Rushite cult to capitalize on what cowards they are. But that doesn't mean that, you know, I don't know. It's it's just so absurd that the, the LaRouche people are getting away with this. Yeah. And and I'll say the last thing that I'll say before you, you go out here is you pointed out that a majority of people in the U.S. and many other countries support diplomacy. They do want this war to end. Unlike a lot of, you know, these imperial planners in Washington, they don't want to continue using Ukrainians as cannon fodder in a proxy war against Russia. This is a a poll that was done in September and it found that 57% of voters, not just people in the United mm -hmm. States, specifically voters, support diplomatic negotiations to end the war in Ukraine, even if Ukraine has to make compromises. And every country engaging in any diplomatic process always has to engage in compromises. That's how wars end. They end with both sides making compromises. So this is a popular policy, although you never see it reflected in the media. And you, you don't see it reflected by mainstream politicians either. It's it's really frustrating. And, you know, I've tried to to do a lot of reporting on this on how Western governments have they have killed attempts at having a diplomatic breakthrough. Like we saw in late March and early April after there were peace talks held in, in Turkey. Mm -hmm. So th that's a whole other long conversation. Actually, one last point I would like to make. I don't think Zelensky is capable of taking the initiative because if he does, he's going to wind up like Gaddafi. And that might sound ridiculous, but... I mean, the the opposition to him. Except unlike Gaddafi, who was killed by, like, NATO-backed forces, you're saying, well, I guess they are NATO-backed. You're saying he'll well, be I, killed internally by... I mean, yeah, I mean, he'll be lynched right. if he, like, were to... Yeah, I guess they're you know, both NATO-backed. <laughs> if he made some kind of deal. I mean, that because that's... I know we're trying to wrap up here, but, like, there was this whole movement from, 20, from like, almost the moment he gets into office opposing his because Zelensky was elected on a peace agenda and you know it's there's this weird thing of U.S. history where it's like the the hawks end up making are the only ones who can make diplomacy you know it's like Nixon going to China or Trump in North Korea even though of course and both cases starting with this like madman theory whatever and then or, on the flip Re side Reagan signing right the, of course the arms treaties which is what established the the possibility of de-escalation of the Cold War, the first Cold War. But then you have Zelensky come in as like a peace candidate, and he's completely sabotaged. And then so when Biden comes into office, he does this flip to even outdoing Poroshenko, his predecessor, in terms of um, going after, you know, so-called Russian influence in the country, which, you know, there's, there is, like, there's not to say that there's no, of course Russia is, has, you know, Basically, he um, shut, he shut down, down opposition media like Zelensky shut down opposition media many months before Russia invaded. He shut down, you know, uh, pro-Russian media and scare quotes. I mean, some of it is pro-Russian, but he, he undercut he, Russia's like soft power, basically illegalized you know? political parties. Yeah, all of that. And the thing is, when Biden was coming into office or was running, Michael Carpenter, this guy, the Biden advisor on Ukraine and Russia, who's an idiot and crazy or whatever hawk um he uh was promising that biden will um drastically increase uh lethal aid to ukraine but then also that Biden, the biden administration will quote help 
beat back this growing, by the way, Russian influence in Ukraine. So this is, I mean, basically Biden campaign and coming into, before getting into office is signaling to Zelensky that, you know, if you want to be on our good side, this is what you need to do. And, um, and then it's after this pivot when, uh, that Russia starts to amass troops on Ukraine's border. And, you know, there was something called the capitulation resistance movement. And they weren't the only ones, but they were like kind of vying with the Azov movement and other people who are more extreme than them to basically threaten a new Maidan revolution against Zelensky if he made any kind of capitulation to Russia, which was basically mean, meant negotiate it all or give up anything. And, um, the leader of that movement is a guy, Andriy Levus. He is, and after Russia invaded, he declared, he openly revealed that he is the deputy head of OUNB for policy. So, again, not trying to make a unifying theory of everything with OUNB, but like this is important stuff, and they have played a role historically and in like recent history um, into where we are today. And, um, it's, you know, this isn't about, I don't buy this narrative that, uh, you know, Putin had no choice but to invade Ukraine, you know? I mean, yes, the United States, NATO, all of that has played a role in provoking it. But, um, you know, of course, well, you know, you, you really need to present a lot more evidence if you're going to make the argument that Putin had no choice but to invade when he did. But uh, undoubtedly, this whole history that we're kind of touching on, if only even a little bit surface level, is, uh, I think, very important to, you know, explaining how we got here. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, this this is the position of many countries around the world. Certainly China has taken the position of saying that the, the war has only made situ the situation worse. We need a diplomatic resolution. I mean, you pointed out the war has ironically made Ukrainian fascists even more powerful. I mean, they are, were they were there. Um, Obviously, we spent two hours talking about how the Ukrainian far right did have influence, especially in the security services. People always talk about the parliament, but the parliament misses the forest for the trees. It's we're focusing on the military, the National Guard, the police, these groups like C-14, obviously Azov. Um, they did have significant influence and now they have more influence and they're national heroes and they're celebrated internationally. So it's a disaster on that front. And it's, of course, strength in NATO. Mm -hmm. NATO is stronger than it's been in many decades. So this war, I mean, has been bad for, for really everyone except, you know, arms dealers, the military industrial complex. It's uh, and and the neo-Nazis you know, in Ukraine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, of course, you know, that's why we constantly have stressed the importance of a diplomatic resolution. And I want to thank Mas uh, Robeson, great journalist, researcher. I have links to his blogs below. I want to thank everyone who commented. There were a lot of things I wanted to respond to, comments, super chats, but we have literally, we have hundreds and hundreds of comments and there was a big debate going on. Oh, really? I'm and it's already, we're already almost two hours. So unfortunately, I didn't have time to respond to those. Yeah. So a lot of, a lot of a very, very vibrant debate going on mm. and people on multiple sides arguing. My DMs are open if anyone wants to, you know. Yeah, and people can- on Twitter. Yeah, I'll just again put this up. People can follow Moss at Moss Robeson two underscores. Um, it was a great conversation. And, uh, you know, I'll hopefully have you back sometime in the future to talk about this. Yeah, me too. Thanks so much. Great. Well, thanks to everyone.
Uh, if you want to listen to this later, it'll be available as a podcast if you're not watching it on YouTube. If you're watching it on YouTube or one of the other platforms, please subscribe below. And of course, if you want to support this, you can support the show at patreon.com slash multipolarista. And I'll see you all next time. Thanks a lot.